and welcome to one of our best offs for 2018 and we're going to kick off uh, best films today um, in the company of uh, Chris Ward hello and Wesley Shearer hello and uh, Ian Gregson making a rear appearance hello <laughs> um, so Wesley let's start with you how's your, been your year in film uh, my year in film has been excellent so far I think it's been a really really interesting year for film there's been a lot of a lot of diverse filmmaking been happening. Um, for me, particularly, my list of really good indie films that I wanted to watch has just got out of control. And <laughs> I've just managed to keep up with the big hitters this year, and um, with a few sort of indies thrown in. But yeah, it's been a really, really strong year, I think. So, what 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 have been your favourite films of the year? Uh, well, let's go straight into it. Straight into it. Standout for me has to be Phantom Threads. Ah, without, good, good. I doubt. Um, yes. Actually, before I was sitting down here, I was trying to think and go, did we talk about this last year? Because it feels like it came out so long ago. I think it was yeah. February it came out. So yeah. it's one of these ones that like it was in the kind of award season conversation this time last year. So it would have probably got like a release in America around about the time that we were talking last year. But it didn't come out here. Because the GFT ran like a whole Paul Thomas Anderson season in the run up yeah. to. So like that was, we did that like throughout January missed a load of new releases in January because every Sunday afternoon instead of going to see like The Shape of Water or whatever <laughs> being the GFT seeing Boogie Nights again you know? um, but yeah and then it kind of culminated with the actual release of Phantom Threads so yeah because I really enjoyed your Twitter um, breakdown of all the PTA oh, yeah, yeah, releases yeah, yeah, yeah. it was great <laughs> but yeah what, what a film for me honestly I, I went to see it I think three times in the space of a couple of weeks in the cinema which is um, not a first by any means, but definitely the first in a long while. It was the first film I'd been to for a while, which I went to see twice. Just had to go and see it again. I just thought it was I immense. It twice, yeah. Um, for all, I mean, for all the reasons that have been mentioned, but a if that is to be Daniel Day Lewis's swan song, it's a hell of a way yeah. to finish. Well, is it? Yeah, um, I mean, I don't have the talent to make films ever, but <laughs> um, if, I, if there was any film that was going to make me really want to make film, it is definitely that. Like, I, I remember watching it and just, I was kind of overwhelmed with this sort of feeling that I just couldn't put my finger on that I had when I was growing up and really got into film. And I was sort of watching, like, um, films like uh, Funny Face and Brief mm -hmm. Encounter and stuff mm -hmm. when I was younger and got really transfixed by these old films and couldn't quite understand at a young age why it was I really enjoyed them or what it was about the filmmaking that made me enjoy them so much and want to revisit them and Phantom Thread really just totally captured that for me um, it's, it's, just, got, it's got a real kind of look as well of films from that era too the way that it's like because it was felt shot on film rather than digitally because you know PTA is obviously a big stickler for that and I, luckily the GFT actually got like a 70mm print of it like bit two or so that was the second time I saw it we went back and saw it and I think it was March or April that I finally arrived to actually see it projected. It was really uncanny because it really looks like it's got that kind of slightly washed out colour that yeah. you know you think of when you think of like particularly British films from like the fifties, just as like colour was starting to come in and become you know more widely used. Um, it's not quite as vivid as like Powell and Pressburger, and it's that kind of more slightly drained, you know, like maybe like some early Ealing stuff, you know, like the Lady Killers or something yeah, like that, more definitely. than more than like a matter of life and death or whatever. Um, and it just really captures that kind of vibe. It's also just such a weird film, like the way that it completely starts out as one thing and then ends up in a completely different place from where you might have been expecting. I mean, if you'd seen the trailer for it, you might think period drama, like costume drama or whatever, fashion design, you might have some kind of preconceived notion of what it would be and then it's just completely 
not that by the time it ends. That's exactly yeah. exactly it, yeah. It sort of plays upon this tortured artist narrative, um, but then completely subverts it. There's sort of this kind of like layer upon layer of like lyrical posturing that then sort of reveals itself to be something that you didn't expect it to be. And as Chris says, it's delivered as a sort of quiet melodrama period piece. And um, it's actually just a sort of remarkable character study on like codependency and creativity and um, like vulnerability really, uh, which is not what you expect it was going to be going into the film. And kink. <laughs> yeah, and kink. You know, it's like, uh, like it ultimately becomes about a kind of slightly sadomasochistic relationship, you know, yeah, and like yeah, the power yeah. dynamics at play in that, you know. It, like, it, it says things about relationships which few films or books or anything dare to, you know, yeah. uh, uh, it really goes into in detail. And, I mean, the, the performances were amazing across the board, but Daniel Day-Lewis, it reminded me that he has this ability to make what are clearly unlikable characters, you care for them. Yeah. And that's a difficult thing to pull off. I mean, he's done it through throughout his career and he, he really does it with this one. Now, I've forgotten the name of the actress in the, and I'm looking at you, Chris, Vicky to remember. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's, again, it's a stunning kind of two-handed... Because yeah. there are other people in the film as Wesley well. Lando. It's oh, amazing. Yeah, um, yeah. But, uh, yeah. Cyril. <laughs> Yes, yeah, Cyril, yeah. Cyril Woodcock. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, if you haven't seen it, because as you said, it was at the beginning of the year, I mean, look at it, it's just a, a, a phenomenal um, film. Um, any others that kind of hit you like that? Um, I'm just looking through my list of, of films that I've written down. I think um, another one I'm sure Chris is probably quite on board with, uh, You Are Never Really Here, <sighs> um, which, yeah. I mean, do we really need to say any more? <laughs> That's pretty much it, isn't it? This um, was my film of the year, I think. You know, yeah, um, I mean, Phantom yeah. Thread. Uh, aside, certainly, my, you know, if we're talking since we're on Scotch, so hey, if we're talking Scotch related stuff, it was definitely there. Uh, Lynn Ramsey just um, is among my favourite filmmakers, and this was quite astonishing. I mean, you said about Phantom Thread, um, you don't know where it's going, and it takes you an unusual you know, directions, that's sort of what this does right from the beginning, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, just the kind of textures of it, you know, the kind of the way that the kind of oral kind of layers to it and, you know, just the kind of the kind of editing strategies and that, it's just, she has like that kind of command of film language that I think you see, particularly coming from Scotland, like once a generation, you know, there's like, there's nobody else currently operating on her level yeah. out of this country right now. I mean, there's very, she is one of those, like I've said from the start, from when we started doing these podcasts, that like, it's um, it's not quite enough for like Scottish culture to be like, oh yeah, it's good because like nobody else around here is doing that. You really need people who are like taking stuff to the level of other people around the world. Yeah. I think Lynn Ramsey is definitely one of those people whose work can stand up to the best. You talk about anything. Paul Thomas Anderson. I mean, yeah. she's up shoulder to shoulder there. Absolutely. You know, you can name like any other director currently working whose work plays at like film festivals to like you know great acclaim and you know anticipation and excitement. People are excited when a new Lynn Ramsey film gets announced. It's not just people like like us it's not just people here like in Glasgow or Edinburgh or like across the country or whatever it's people internationally it's yeah. people who are going to like Berlin and Toronto and Venice and all the other major film festivals yeah. you know are excited to see what she's going to do next I guess it is as well because she goes so long between making films you know yeah, I mean it's yeah. only she's the Blue Nile yeah <laughs> this is her fourth <laughs> film in 20 years you know you, you've got like Ratcatcher in what 99 then yeah, like to be. Marvin Caller 2002 then we need to talk about Kevin nine years after that and now like seven years after that you know yeah. finally a fourth one. I know that 
it's kind of circumstances outside her control all the time. It's in terms of funding and, you know, like a lot of other factors come into play. She was talking about making her version of Moby Dick in space for a while. And she, she was on board with a Jane got her gun, yeah, and she, yeah. she ended up uh, walking off set on the first day. And yeah, I, yeah I, what I admire about her work, and you've just yeah. named her kind of back. Uh, catalogue there and they're just all brilliant films yeah. and so distinct from each other as well mm. it's such distinctive kind of topics covered in them but still with that kind of unifying voice going through them you can still recognise instantly this is a Lynn Ramsey film because yeah. she's got that kind of there are elements of other filmmakers in there but it's the way she synthesises them and it's something that's like kind of her own voice yeah. this thing that kind of played about with time and you know really lush images but also like filming you know quite ugly things in really beautiful ways you know like yeah. just um yeah no, and again like just not to harp entirely on like Lynn Ramsey on it like again performances across the board really like Joaquin Phoenix and you're never really here just just phenomenal as well you really know, just, really was and I think it's such good points that you, you touched on there in terms of you don't think of Lynn, that Lynn Ramsey is bringing a film out as this new like this new film coming out by this great Scottish director you think of it as this new film coming out by Lynn Ramsey yeah. Oh wait, she also happens to be Scottish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and Absolutely. Exactly shooting those things in that certain way that, I mean, as a sort of re- revenge, sort of hitman type thriller uh, that it is. Lots of films in that genre are all focused on the gruesome violence and gaining pleasure from seeing this sort of gritty, gruesome, blood splattered across the screen type thing. That is not what that film is about. The way that that is shot and framed is absolutely beautiful and makes you think of the consequences of actions and people's sort of emotional state when they're going through, um, you know, really torrid times in personal life. Of course, we can't relate to someone who's going out as a hitman, but (laughs) um, the way that it's framed is a beautiful shot where any other film would have shown, you know, some sort of gruesome killing. Yeah. Yet all you've seen was cameras filming mirrors as somebody was walking away from the devastation that you never actually bore witness to um, and that just leaves this sort of imprint in your brain of what could have been it reminded me of the shower scene in Hitchcock's Psycho where yeah. people always think they see the stabbing and you don't it's cut so you don't see it and it's the same I, and I, I've watched uh, you were never really here again afterwards uh, um, and the scenes where you think you see the blow being struck you don't often, yeah. you know. It's been cut away, but it's it's a. You're right. It's a film which is violent throughout, but it's it's about the consequences and the personal consequences as well. The kind of effect that will have, and also going back to the reasons why people. You know, there's always reasons why people end up doing doing what they do, no matter what it is. I think that's the interesting thing about it as well is that although there is the reading of it as you know, kind of the trauma of like a veteran you know because he's been in the military like in Phoenix's character has been in the military and there's kind of implications that a lot of his actions now are kind of the effect of what he's done in the past for a living there's also this kind of implication that it's some kind of compulsion almost that it's like it's something that's kind of built into him that he can't quite shake off and he kind of has to have an outlet for this violence as well you know that's not necessarily just trauma and that is like I think the more kind of lingering and like kind of disturbing implication of it well he's well. good at it's it a, yeah and that's yeah. and you know and people take pleasure at the things that they're good at yeah. and just I mean and it's just such a brilliant film when I think back at it now you know there's there are there's humour in it as well yeah, yeah. like you know I've been to Paradise song yeah, on the radio yeah. and uh, uh, their pathos and, and the relationship with his mother and it's, it's an absolutely 
incredible uh, piece of filmmaking. We should mention as well the common thread between the two films that we've talked about so far, which is both have soundtracks by Johnny Greenwood. Ah, yes. Well yeah. pointed very, out. Very good soundtracks by Johnny Greenwood. Yeah, they are indeed. Yeah, he's, he's, he really is at the top of his game in terms of um, doing that yeah, kind of work. Yeah, and much better than uh, his Phil Cooneyparts. So yeah. For another film this year, which <laughs> yeah. I shall not go into. But... Oh, we might go into it later on. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so Chris what about yeah. yourself what about a couple of um, well a favourite film of the year I think like Hart says first, uh, says Phantom Thread but Head says First Reformed uh, Paul Schrader's uh, kind of I don't want to say comeback because he's still been working but he definitely hasn't made anything on this level in, in some time it's, um, it's interesting actually I think I'm fairly certain when we had this like, discussion this time last year I think I said Silence was my mm-hmm. favourite film of the year the Scorsese film that's right and this is almost kind of like it almost works as a companion piece to it because it's almost drawn from similar influences and kind of looking at similar themes as well so the, the interesting difference is Scorsese's coming at it from like a kind of Catholic point of view and Schrader's Protestant <laughs> so it's that kind of and obviously they're collaborated in the past, obviously worked together on Taxi Driver mm-hmm. and, you know, Raging Bull and, you know, they have this great kind of creative partnership. But uh, it's interesting to see kind of the different angles that they come at it from. So again, like drawn from a similar well of influences is, you know, it's Dreher and Bresson, Otsu, you know, these kind of like the, the filmmakers they call like transcendentalists, you know, where it's you know, still and, you know, it's meditative and it's slow building and it's all about the cumulative effect and all that. And it's focuses on uh, a Protestant priest for a, a Dutch Reformed church in upstate New York played by Ethan Hawke who uh, his church is basically a museum piece now it's a tourist attraction there was a stop on the Underground Railroad so it has this historical significance and people come and they buy the baseball caps and everything but then they go, actually go to church at the big flashy mega church across the street which also owns the church that he works at so he's basically kind of redundant he's there for you know for show and um, he undergoes a crisis of faith when one of his parishioners a younger parishioner played by Amanda Seyfried uh, comes to him to ask him to talk to her husband who's an environmental activist and is um, depressed basically he's depressive and it's about the state of the world and the inevitability of climate change and global warming and like basically becoming an apocalypse <laughs> and is like apocalyptically depressed by this and that kind of malaise then infects Ethan Hawke and his character and it's that question of well what is my moral duty here as a man of God? What can I do in the face of the end of the world and you know the potential destruction? Like, what is my moral obligation here? To do I stop this? Is this God's plan? Is this all this kind of stuff? So it's it sounds really heavy, and it is in a sense, but it's also like it, it carries like it, it insinuates itself into you. It's just very slow and quiet and meditative, but it just builds in power and power and power until the, the you know the final moments, and it's. Uh, like, I don't think a day has gone by since I've seen it that I haven't thought about it in some capacity. Wow. It's one of those ones that, like, it's so trite to say something is like, this is the film we need now, or whatever, you know, or like, the, the whatever it is. Like, I hate that film the world needs now. Yeah, exactly. But it's, um, it is, but it feels very of the moment and timely, but also it has that kind of timeless style to it, and it's just, yeah, it's, it's a masterpiece. It's, it's absolutely incredible. It's interesting that the three films we've spoken about, uh, I mean, there's dysfunction, to say yeah. the least, in all of them. Uh, so uh, maybe not... Maybe when we look at the year as a whole, that yeah, these themes... will find something later. So. <laughs> no, these themes may stay through. Yeah. Uh, and, and what else after... Well, um, I say that this is another really interesting thing that like this year compared to last year. So last year as well, we started talking about um, Netflix getting into and, yes. you know, Amazon Video on Demand services getting into the kind of production of more prestigious 
you know, titles, you know, so last year it was Netflix had the new Noah Baumbach film, I think was the one I thought about this year, it's just been an onslaught, so you've got um, the new Coen Brothers film, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, went straight to Netflix, I think it might have played a couple of cinemas in London. The Jungle um, Book thing is out yeah, on Netflix Yeah, Andy Serkis' Netflix thing, um, just last night I went to see Roma at the GFT, the new Alfonso Cuaron film, which uh, is getting a week at the GFT, but is released day and day on Netflix, so you can go watch that right now. Uh, although it's filmed in 65mm and on digital cameras and with a big Dolby Atmos soundtrack so it feels kind of like it's wasted on Netflix I'm not quite sure why they pump so much money in <laughs> when it's going to be not seen at its best advantage there but I'm not questioning it because you know it's still got to see it but the one that um, was the biggest deal certainly for me this year was uh, Netflix financed the completion of Orson Welles' last film uh, The Other Side of the Wind which he filmed on and off throughout the 70s and died before he could finish editing it so um, a few of his kind of cohorts and kind of you know acolytes uh, who then went into filmmaking themselves. So Peter Bogdanovich, mm-hmm. the, the Last Picture Show, uh, Frank Marshall, who's producer and director, uh, they spearheaded a movement to actually finish the film. So it's centers. It's really self-reflexive. So it focuses on a, a an aging filmmaker played by John Huston, uh, who is trying to finish. A film is set on the last day of his life. You know at the start that he dies in a car crash at the end of the film. You're told that. And so it's kind of a party at his house's birthday party where he's showing the latest footage from his film, which is called The Other Side of the Wind. Mm-hmm. And it's just this complete whirlwind of like different film stocks. And, you know, it's done in a kind of mockumentary style. And it feels, it still feels radical, you know, yeah. like looking at what Wells was doing back in like the mid-70s. Like, and it's one of those ones where you look at it now and you're like, how might this have changed the course of film history if this had actually been released at the time that it was shot you know is is overwhelming like I've still only seen it once I desperately need to go back and see it again because there's so much to take in it's so dense and it's, it's not an easy film but it's still so full of recognisably Wellsian it's really interesting film. because Wells was kind of considered past his best Absolutely, hugely yeah. past his best by that point and he was doing adverts for uh, beer I think or something yeah, like that yeah Frozen Peas was yeah. the famous one but uh, <laughs> That's the thing, though. So he might have been written off, but he, he was still doing some incredible yeah. work. And saying, like, F for Fate came out in the same Yeah, that's right. A masterpiece, like, absolutely incredible. And I don't think... I think his own work as a writer-director never really suffered. I mean, obviously, you start off by making Citizen Kane, like, most yeah. of what you do is <laughs> probably going to be seen as a disappointment yeah. after that. But, um, like, just even... Every single decade has its masterpiece, you know, mm. that he was working, you know, whether it's... Like Touch of Evil in the fifties or the trial in the sixties. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I think he's still like he's still like he really kept going to uh, to a degree that is like. I mean, you don't you don't want to say Orson Welles is underrated, but there's still I think there's still this general perception that he made Citizen Kane and then that was it. Whereas he's this massively rich filmography. Yes, it's just so full of incredible, like just incredible pieces of work that um, some it's so rewarding to actually have like kind of. Again, maybe not the film that he intended to be a swan song, but to have like a new piece of that kind of click into place is just such a. It just felt like such a gift, you know. So does it kind of work like AI works? You know, it started out in Kubrick and then went Spielberg. And... Um, not really, because it like it, it, the filming had been completed, right. so he'd filmed everything. And they had the script to work with. It was just a case of actually restoring the footage and okay. actually cutting it together. So he'd left quite detailed notes. It was just a case of trying to follow it as closely as possible, kind of like when Touch of Evil was reconstructed in the 90s so like when Touch of Evil was released in the late 50s it was famously butchered by the studio like it was I think it was RKO that uh, 
took it off his hands. Was it RKO? Maybe not. Um, Universal. It was Universal. Uh-huh. RKO took Amerson's off him. Um, and he was butchered and he wrote an impassioned memo saying this is how I wanted it can you please maybe you know put it back like this and it just got released in a version that wasn't how he wanted it to be so in the late 90s again similar thing a team uh, led by Walter Murch the great editor and sound designer who worked on like Apocalypse Now and a bunch of other Francis Ford Coppola productions um led a team who reconstructed Touch of Evil in a form that was closer to what Wells had envisioned. So I think it's a similar thing now with the other side of the wind, where it's more a case of this footage exists, let's just get it in a way that's more in line with his original vision. Um, the difference being that nobody had seen this prior to this year. So it's, yeah, it's an incredible thing to have. Um, I'm going to talk about a couple of films that I saw originally at uh, Glasgow Film Festival, but which have had a... Um, life beyond that, and the first is Ne Passaran. I don't know if you did you get to see that. I didn't see it. I've heard, I've heard nothing but good things. Well, okay, so this is film about um, these uh, guys who worked in Isco Bride and um, a Rolls Royce, and they were uh, making parts that were being sent over to Chile and used uh, in. Um, a vehicles which have been used by Pinochet's army to repress his own people and ultimately kill a lot of his own people and they said we're not happy with this and we're going on strike and they did go on strike um, thinking that no one would ever you know um, know anything about it and you know it was not but it, they felt that it was the right thing to do and actually this fed back to Chile uh, without them knowing it and um, they became kind of folk heroes back in, in Chile once Pinochet had fallen uh, and the film kind of follows up these guys today and um, unites them with some peop- some of the people in Chile who uh, uh, knew their story and it's just a very, very kind of simple premise in a way but wow, what an emotional movie, you know, um, they... Try to say this without giving anything away. Um, it's just a very human story, and um, yes, it is obviously almost right on our doorstep. But that's kind of what makes it interesting that you know folk working in a factory in Isco Bride um, changed uh, changed the world in, in a small way, but a very significant way, and and have never kind of been forgotten for that. And, and it's a Chilean filmmaker that's made it, and uh, yeah, it's a it's a it's a really um, emotional uh, movie which. Um, still on at various films on at the Dunoon Film Festival recently and and you can catch it online uh, as well as you can Voyageuse which is made by me, Miles Thomas who was on a podcast uh, during the year and uh, me has been making films for a, for a long time um, and has got to the stage where she doesn't even try to kind of get funding for it and all of that stuff and go through the hoops and all that she just says I know what I can do I'm going to make this myself and I'm going to put it out there. And this was a very personal story about her mother-in-law, and it came from um, her mother-in-law passed away. She lived in this house in Edinburgh, and it was up to me and her husband to go and kind of take the stuff out. And she kept finding footage, old film footage, from, oh, man, it would have been the Second World War. Yeah, it would have been, yeah. So for roughly about that time between the wars and then moving in and... um, it's quite incredible to see film footage from that time because it's quite rare. They were obviously, family was reasonably wealthy, um, Eastern European family, and um, they ended up 
coming over to, to Scotland, first England and then uh, to Scotland. And the story itself uh, of this woman's life uh, and her brother, for instance, who ended up being one of the founding members of the CIA. <laughs> and uh, uh, her husband, um, who, um, well, is he a spy? Isn't he a spy? You kind of got to make it yourself. But what is most interesting for me is she kind of shot this in a neighbour's house to replicate her the mother's house. She used the footage that she found. She put it all together kind of in her shed and she got it out there and it's been winning awards and it's been going around the, um, the country and it's an incredible undertaking for someone to go, I'm just going to go out and I'm going to make this now. It's not going to make a, a whole load of money, but at least it's getting kind of recognition that it should. Um, it's called Voyages and uh, again, you can catch it. I think it's on... Um, uh, Vivo do a pay thing don't they I think yeah so they're doing um, uh, that which kind of going on for you what you were saying about how Netflix have been we should talk a little bit again about the way that we view movies because I think even in the last 12 months that's changed again you know yeah, I mean, the, the yeah. DVD seems to be almost dead I mean, in the way going the way of the VHS yeah I mean I would say there's still definitely a market for um for Blu-ray, I would say in terms of like collectors and like cinephiles, because there's still so much stuff that you just cannot stream. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. There's still stuff that is only available on physical media, and you know, it, it depends so much on having the income from people who are willing to buy physical media to fund like restorations and dig stuff out of the vaults and you know make stuff available. So I think there will still be a core of people who will buy like Criterion Collection Blu-rays and like, you know, Masters of Cinema and all these kind of boutique labels Arrow and all that kind of stuff but are they the kind of vinyl collectors of yeah, film or? I would say that's definitely a good way of looking at it I would say I mean well maybe because again vinyl we can make into this more in the, the music episode it definitely feels like peak vinyl has been reached in some, yeah, yeah, to some degree you know where like again it's just things are getting so expensive now and like for new release albums it's definitely you look back to it like a decade ago and you could a new album would cost you maybe like 15 quid and now you're talking like maybe a tenner more than that for an mm. album so I don't think Blu-ray is quite there yet I think it's probably like maybe as as time goes on it becomes you know pressures in the marketplace and all this kind of stuff become more maybe it will come more that in, way but in terms of how people consume film no matter you know yeah. uh, interesting enough I think the cinema is one of the best years in terms of people attending or making money and that's another thing the way that they make money is an interesting thing but then it has since the 70s I mean it's been hugely popular so I think people are going to the cinema still and maybe um, as you see Netflix or a lot of movies eventually will, will stream yeah not maybe some of the art house stuff, but yeah. Well, that's the thing. That's the interesting thing. Like, as I was saying, I went to see Roma last night at the GFT. So it was its opening night and it was well attended. It wasn't in the biggest screen at the GFT because I think we're currently in the onslaught of It's a Wonderful Life screenings at the GFT, which is like, you know, four times a day in screen one selling, selling quite well. But, um, like, these are people, everybody who went to see it last night, I would say the screen was probably a good two thirds full, if not more than that. And these are all people who could, I mean, it was a miserable night. People could have stayed in and yeah. watched it on Netflix at home, you know, you could stream it to their TVs yeah. or whatever. But these are, you know, people who wanted that experience of seeing it in the cinema, and rightly so, because as I say, it's filmed on these, like, you know, gorgeous Arri Alexa, like 65 mil cameras. It's got a Dolby Atmos soundtrack, so all these layers, like 7.1 surround sound and stuff. It builds up this massive soundscape to give you the imprint, this totally immersive feeling of being in Mexico City in the cities. Yeah. And I don't know how that translates to home viewing. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, it's, it's weird. I'm kind of conflicted on it because part of me feels like, I think with kind of 
rep screens and archival stuff, I'm still not entirely on board with going to, going to the cinema to pay to see a digital print of something that from like the 40s or 50s or yeah. whatever. If it's rare and I can't see it any other way, then absolutely 100%. But if it's not going to be a film print, then my attitude to it is, well, it's the same digital print that I can go buy on a Blu-ray or whatever and, you know, watch at home and have it on a, you know, decent enough sound mm. system, decent enough size of screen. But that's a different thing because it's not originated on digital, so it's, you're kind of swapping mediums anyway. I think with, like, new releases and stuff, when you're actually putting in the effort to create this, like, immersive thing and then you're just leaving it to people to watch on their laptops with, like, their earbuds in or whatever, it's like something's going to be missing there. I mean, on the one hand, Netflix is great for, like, accessibility, you know? Mm -hmm. So people all over the country, regardless of whether they're living in a major city, they could be living out in the middle of the country, they could be living, you know, in somewhere that has a two-screen cinema that's currently showing, like, uh, I don't know, Wreck-It Ralph and the... What else is out just now? Like the new Spider-Man film or whatever, and wouldn't get a chance to get in Roma coming. And so maybe there's a teenager sitting who's like desperate to get in the film, wants to be a filmmaker, is really keen to see the new Alfonso Cuarón film or something, and now they can. Mm -hmm. And you know that's great. And I wouldn't want to deny them that opportunity at all because that's unequivocally a good thing. But at the same time, like I think the Roma release strategy is actually a really good way of handling it in that you do still get that theatrical window so people who do want that fully immersive experience can still go and have it it doesn't mean that you don't have the accessibility angle of it and I mean it's whether or not it's worthwhile for cinemas I guess yeah, whether yeah. they think they'll get the audience out there if it's on Netflix on the same day yeah. so I think that's what it will come down to is whether there's you know a market for it yeah because the, the two films that you mentioned Wesley both of them would not have had the impact if you just were to watch them on your laptop again, no, I mean they're, they're proper cinematic experiences. Yeah. But I think I think um, I agree with a lot of that. But I think our attitude or my attitude personally has sort of changed a little bit mm -hmm. compared to previous years when we have discussed this. Mm -hmm. I think this is probably the third year in a row now we've probably discussed mm -hmm. this a little bit, mm -hmm. um, and it's probably changed in the sense that, as Chris just said, the the release strategies are getting a lot smarter. And last year or the year before, when Netflix was starting to do their own productions they weren't getting cinematic releases. Mm -hmm. Netflix were very much withholding that from yeah, the cinemas, yeah, yeah. or the cinemas didn't want to stream it because they weren't sure how many people were going to come through into the cinema to watch the films. But what it's really doing is, I think it's really sort of, kind of nourishing this new level of sort of left-field cinema mm -hmm. into this sort of mainstream audience, which was never really a thing before. I mean, if you look at, I mean, I, I have a, a cinema card because mm -hmm. it's convenient and it's cheap and, I can go and see a lot of releases. Um, we discussed it recently, actually, about how um, Silverburn, Sydney World, seems yeah. to be showing a lot of smaller indie releases right, that okay. the That's big large one in Glasgow doesn't do. Yeah. So there is ways around it, and there's ways of these films getting into the larger mainstream cinemas, because the mass, vast majority of movie-going audiences don't go to see films at the GFT or they go to see at the independent cinemas. Mm. So having this sort of release strategy allows films like that to be beamed into people's homes and... Two years ago, most folk were watching stuff on their laptops and their mobile mm. phones. Now people still very much are doing that, but I feel like a lot of people have really, really good home setups. Now they have larger mm. TV screens, they have they have sound bars that are really, really cheap from PC World or yep. whatever, you know, they've got a lot of better systems to watch stuff on. A lot of new TVs and a lot of new things, sorts such as Fire Sticks and all this, all have Netflix built into them. Um, so they're automatically getting immediately a better a home cinema cinema system, yes. Yeah. Obviously we are very much into film. We don't really think that that is the best cinema experience mm -hmm. and we would rather, much rather go and see it in the cinema. 
and I'd imagine there is still quite a larger enough audience for that to justify yeah. the cinema screen in it as Chris mentioned with people still attending Roma despite it being out on yeah. Netflix on a rainy cold night yeah. um, but what it is doing is allowing people to then experience that in a way that they would never have done before because they either would not have tracked the film down because it would never have had the Netflix budget mm-hmm. marketing campaign behind it to really push it into the forefront of general cinema or, or home viewing audiences yet it's also allowing them to kind of access films that they would never really look at or, or really be interested in before. Oh, it's interesting you should say that because the other night um, I was over at Friends and he's got a projector set up and he's got a new screen and he's got the sound bar and it was, I mean, it, it was fantastic. The film was Outlaw King. Ah, uh, yeah. yeah. So I, since uh, we're talking film, we're talk- I don't know if you've seen Outlaw yeah, King. Yeah. Oh, great. This is good. So who wants to go first on Outlaw King? <laughs> well, I'm being looked at. Well, yes, know. you are. No, no, Wesley, on you go. So, Outlaw King for me, um, I think it delivered pretty much everything I expected it to deliver. Now, that's not, not a criticism nor a praise. Yeah. Um, it's very cleverly neither. Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> it delivered exactly what I thought it was going to do. I um, think it delivered exactly what I thought it was yeah, going to do as well. I think, uh, interestingly for me, I feel like I would have appreciated the film a lot more had it been more of a character study. I feel like a lot of films, historical it is in a way historical fiction yeah. I mean it's actually staggeringly more true to the history than a lot of films are like that but obviously in very many other ways it's very much complete fiction um, but what I would like to see from films like that is ones that actually touch on the relationships and the you know the attitudes of people from that era and mm-hmm. how they cope with you know the horrors of what's going on around them yeah. because a lot of these films treat it as this is just very much every day so it's not it's not a horrific situation. Of yeah. course, it was a horrific yes, situation. Yes, yeah, and there weren't um, wars every day. Yeah, there weren't, yeah. yeah. Um, you don't tend to see the impact of that in a lot of films, and Outlaw King, again, doesn't really show that either. What it does do is um, puts together some really well-constructed cinematic battle scenes mm-hmm. um, that actually work really, really well for a Netflix audience on a kind of larger screen. Yeah. Um, I've never seen it in the cinema. I watched it on Netflix. Yeah. Um, so there was parts where I really, really enjoyed um, some really beautiful sweeping cinematography, um, some fairly well acted, acted pieces, some questionable accents everywhere, of course. Um, but sort of lost my train of thought there. But I think at the end of the day, I <laughs> let's put it this way: the more I watched it, the more I couldn't stop thinking of Star Wars. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Right. <laughs> there, there was just the way that the 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 feeling the characters interact with each other, the the battle scenes. Um, it was very much just a sort of build as a sort of realist horror, like historical uh-huh. um, fiction piece, and it really wasn't. It was a bit of you know fantastical cinematic battle fluff, really. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So as I said, don't love it. Yeah. Um, but don't hate it either because I feel like. Although it sort of fooled people into thinking what it was going to be, it almost achieved what I expected it to. So, and my expectations were slightly higher than average, and it just about got there. Yeah. So, I, uh, I think it's the definition of damning the feet. But I watched it because I knew Chris had seen it, so I thought, well, and yeah. I didn't know you'd seen it, but we could have a chat about it because it was probably the big kind of Scottish related film or sort of set film of the year. And so I, my uh, um, expectations were not high and were probably met. But um, Chris, what about you? I thought it was pish. 
I think like I think it's just, like a prime example of, like what we were saying earlier with Lynn Ramsey about how like like it might be good for Scotland, but I think you say that against any other piece of like similarly themed historical drama, action, whatever from anywhere around the world. I've okay, the big one to set it against would be Braveheart. Oh yeah, absolutely. Which again is from Scottish history. I would say for all of Mel Gibson's many many faults yes. as a human being, as a filmmaker, yes. <laughs> his films have personality. Yeah, <laughs> like Apocalypto is insane. Braveheart also fairly deranged yes. in many ways. I think that's right. Um, I think there's a mad the madness of Mel yes, comes through. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. even go back to Lethal Weapon. Yeah, comes yeah, through hundred percent. And Chris- there's there's an authorial voice there. Yeah. Whether or not you like that authorial voice <laughs> yes, or that personality, absolutely. it's at least there. Yeah. And I think the smart thing about Braveheart as well is again for all its many historical inaccuracies and harping on that, but just as a piece of filmmaking in terms of a rootable interest in it, you know, to invest in the main character. With Braveheart, it feels very much like a people's rebellion. Do you know what yeah. I mean? It's the people rising up against an oppressor. Yeah. And that's something that people can relate to all over the world. With Outlaw King, at the end of the day, it's like, all right, but he's still going to be a king. Like, yeah. he's not been elected here. Yeah. He's yeah, still, yeah. like, your overlord. It's just like, it felt like there wasn't much at stake for everyday people in this. You know what I mean? It's like, whether it's the English or the Scottish who's going to be ruined, unless you're a diehard monarchist. Yeah. Like, it's kind of, it feels more difficult to be invested. In yeah, I mean, if you think of the... Um, Robert the Bruce portrayal in Braveheart, yeah. which Angus McFadden is. Yeah, it is. Yeah, um, that's probably closer to the yeah. kind of reality than uh, than uh, uh, Chris Pine's almost monosyllabic. You're talking yeah. about his accent, but yeah. you barely spoke through yeah. the whole thing. And <laughs> it is interesting to compare, like again, overlapping characters, like the different depictions of like you know Edward Longshanks and his son, yeah. who obviously in Braveheart <laughs> is this very effete. <laughs> Smell like, is off his like rocker, yeah, isn't yeah, he? Yeah, yeah. The more you think about like, that film, who, whose lover is thrown out of a window and all of this, and is like, well, there's another aspect of Mel Gibson's personality coming through in that. <laughs> um, whereas in this, he's like full on panto villain. It was like again, not to like bring everything back to Orson Welles, but there's that bit in Orson Welles where like. George Clooney's like turns to the camera and goes, I think it would be fun to run a newspaper. You know that. And it felt like every in the second half of Outlaw King, it felt like every single occurrence of Edward II was a variation on that of him being like, The Bruce! Oh! You know, yeah, yeah, what's yeah. he done now? And it just, yeah, it lost me. I didn't think it was particularly. I didn't think it lived up to a standard that would be acceptable on a worldwide scenario. Did you... There's a couple of things about that. Did you go and see it because you knew we were doing this? I think we see it. I saw it on Netflix. All right, so, okay. um, so, yeah, I kind of okay. thought, like, it's, it's the thing Scottish Why version. would you go... But, so that, that yeah. makes but sense. also, again, because, like, it's, it's almost the sense of obligation. It is a big Scottish... It's made by a Scottish director. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, Scottish yeah. history. It's a largely Scottish cast, even if it's headed up by an American doing a Scottish accent. But so you know there is an obligation to, to kind of feel like you have to see it. Um, but there I, is a yeah. lot of um, scenery chewing. There's and, a lot, you yeah. know, and that kind of stuff. Um, but if you're going to do it, you might as well mail it to the max. Yeah, exactly. They're not going to be doing a statue of uh, Chris Pine outside Stirling yeah. Castle. Yeah, that, that is the interesting <laughs> thing, though. It is very much devoid of personality. Yeah. And when yeah. it tries to create that personality, as Chris says, it really does chew the scenery. It yeah. cannot seem to quite get the balance yeah. of you know, sort of distance, dramatic, um, sort of up close and personal, um, character driven, historical drama without bringing into, it's as if somebody sat down and watched, you know, Vikings and Outlander and went, this is how, yeah, this is I how think there's a lot of that about it. Absolutely. So they've tried to shoehorn that into this cinematic, sweeping, dark, brooding film and it can't seem to quite get either of those perfectly correct. 
Um, so it is a little bit of, of both of those things, TV, yeah. melodrama, and dark cinematic yeah, film. It felt like a TV show to me, yeah. which is the danger of doing these things, you know, kind of danger. And also, I think the shadow of the success of Outlander, which I'm baffled by, by the way, I just don't get that at all. It's my good place. Is it? It kind of lies over the whole thing. Yeah, I, I think as well. It's like what you were saying about like it, it met every one of your expectations. I think that's the problem with it. Is it does absolutely nothing to surprise. Yeah, it hits yeah, like yeah, every yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, my expectations were low. I mean, yeah, let's yeah, get yeah. that clear. But it hits every single beat that you expect a film of that type to hit. You know, like betrayals and you know, like lost, like imprisoned lovers, and you know, all this kind of high emotional state, all this kind of stuff, and. Yeah, it just it did. It bored me more than that. That's what it comes yeah. down to. That, that's why I think for me, it it disappointed me yeah. more than offended me. Yeah, yeah, I didn't. Yeah, I didn't yeah. think it was a cataclysmically terrible film. Yeah. I just thought that for all that it was built up to be, it could have been so much more, and had the perfect opportunity to be so much more. And it pretty much fails on all those points. I, I, I will say, though, it is interesting that, again, the fact that it's Netflix funded, that, that Netflix is stepping up and seemingly filling this gap for, like, mid-level, mid-budget. You know, because it's, it's, yeah. like, it's not a massive, like, CGI spectacle or something. So it's not on no. the level of, like, Definitely. what Marvel are currently putting out. Or I'm trying to even think of, like, the last big historical epic, the, like, Cast of Thousands kind of thing. Maybe, oh, God, this is going back years now, but, like, Troy or something yeah. like that. Yeah. You know, it's definitely not on that kind of level <laughs> as a scale of spectacle. But it's also obviously something that needs a lot more budget and funding behind it than just like a two-person character study. So it's like Netflix filling that gap of something. Again, like with, with Roma, you know, they funded Alfonso Cuaron to basically recreate Mexico City in the 70s, you know, and, yeah. and that's like, there's the proverbial cast of thousands and yeah. so many extras and it's like, to be able to take like stories that are maybe smaller and more personal and blow them up to the scale, it's yeah. just it's interesting that that is yeah. what they're funding. and. Especially when most people will see it at home on their TVs and not in a cinema, where that kind of level of scale would maybe be best appreciated. You know, it's just. I mean, I think technically it's it's well made. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely. But then yeah. again, TV is these days. People yeah. expect Game of Thrones levels standard, of production. Yeah, yeah, it's the standard. Um, I will take a metaphorical hat off to it in terms of you know it was very predominantly Scottish yeah. in terms of you know as we said the, the filmmaking the acting the, the location shooting a lot stuff like that. of familiar faces that, that can yeah. only be a positive thing yeah. for film over yeah. here and hopefully that opens up a lot more doors yeah. going forward yeah we'll see what the future of film is in Scotland when the film another very good Netflix yeah. uh, effort this year in terms of Scott Calibre also oh, featuring Tony yeah. Curran uh, yeah. who was very good is this um, a horror movie? Uh, kind of yeah. it was uh, very highly thought by Stephen King yeah. uh, but I'd say it's more a thriller than a horror maybe they're tinged with horror it's it. about um, a couple of old friends who go on a hunting trip in the Highlands before one of them gets married and it goes quite badly wrong quite soon I, I don't want to spoil it because it's actually goes wrong in a quite horrifying and unexpected way. I was going to say, I've heard about this, but I think you've told me about yeah, this. Yeah, yeah. It's a kind of low-budget effort. It's directed by, I think, Matt Palmer is the guy's name. He runs the All Night Horror Nights at the Cameo in right. Edinburgh, so it's his, uh, his debut as like a writer-director. So quite low-budget, but again, like uh, premiered at the Edinburgh Film Festival and was picked up by Netflix and was on Netflix by the end of the week, I think, you know, yeah. by the time it screened. So, um Definitely one to keep an eye out for. Like I had a much better time with that than I did without Will King. Yeah. Kind of, kind of smaller scale, definitely. But uh, yeah, a lot more compelling, a lot more kind of twisty turn. You think it's maybe going to veer into Wicker Man territory in certain points, and never quite get, never quite gets there. But it's uh, 
yeah, it's still definitely worth checking out. Tony Curran is excellent in it. Yeah, yeah really there's this sort of like sense of impending uneasiness through it that you yeah. can't ever quite put your finger on. Okay. Um, it's pretty arse-clenching. Oh, <laughs> excellent. Yeah. Um, talking of low-budget films, one which I saw at the um, Dunning Film Festival was Super November, which uh, Josie... Long, Long, isn't it? Josie Long. I was going to say Josie Long. Josie Long uh, has written and is in. And it's a super low budget film uh, made by Caledonian Mumblecore, I think is the name of the the, uh, (laughs) film. And after the showing, the the director, whose name I forgot, I apologise, did a QA. And it was really interesting just to hear how, again, this was made and kind of why it ended up the way it had, because it felt a little bit like a film of two halves starts out, I think it's meant to be in some ways, it starts out being um, a romantic comedy where um, Josie Long and her flatmates are going to have a super November and uh, things don't quite go that way and there's, I think the problem is that real events have maybe overtaken it because, you know, there's um, a, a curfew imposed and it becomes a real kind of political thriller almost but you've still got this background of these young people trying to just kind of get by and, you know, and live and love and all of those kind of things. Um, the reason I say it's a film of two halves, it was kind of explained by the director because he said they made they ran out of budget and had to shut down, and I think either nine months or even maybe a year before they could pick it up again. So there's things like there's, there's characters who are kind of introduced in the first staff who think, well, why are they not the second half? It's because they had to go and do other things, and it's the practicality of it. But... I enjoyed it. It reminded me of uh, that sinking feeling Bill Forsyth by the fact that it's clearly made on a shoestring. And I think at the time that sinking feeling was kind of the lowest budget feature ever made when when Forsyth made it. And um, the acting is is, uh, charming and um, the writing's pretty good in it. Um, And... It breaks down in places, but then again, it's been made for... I mean, I think calling it um, mumblecore is interesting because I think, you know, it's done with that kind of spirit behind it and it works quite well. And I would I would recommend it for November. I would recommend checking it out. Um, something we haven't spoken about for years, Chris, I don't think we've ever spoken about it when you hear Wesley because we made the decision not to, <laughs> are superhero movies. Uh, yeah. But this year... Uh-huh. They've kind of done different things. I'm thinking of the Thor movie in particular. Was that this year? Or that might have been last, last year. year. Yeah, but we didn't. We definitely didn't speak about no, it. No, I haven't seen it. So oh, right, okay. So you're still, you're still uh, holding that? Oh, no, I, I haven't maintained a complete boycott. I did see Black Panther. Right. Yeah, yeah it's all about us. Which I enjoyed. I like yeah. Black Panther. Like, again, I think probably because it's... Uh, it almost feels like a standalone thing. Like they don't. It felt like there wasn't as much of a compulsion to make it part of the serialized. It isn't Marvel Cinematic. He's in universe. Civil War. And he's yeah. in uh, the uh, Affinity War. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm aware of that, but he didn't. It, it didn't go to great lengths to shoehorn in like Samuel L. Jackson and all this kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah, like, yeah. It felt like there was there were the barest traces of it in the film. Like it didn't feel like something you needed to have seen twelve previous films to, to get the most out of as I a, think as that I think going back to the Thor movie, which I think you're right, probably was the end of last year, but that's a similar one as well. I think you would enjoy it um, more than you think you would. Um, but as someone, I'm talking about this because I'm a massive Marvel fan, going right back to the first things I probably read were Marvel comics. So I do know of these things, you know, like... Uh, um, Tim from the office who's in Black Panther, Martin Freeman. Martin, yeah. uh, his character is from the comics. You know there are there are these links in there, but you're right. It's much more 
subtle than uh, than uh, some of the other ones were as well. I mean, do you watch these movies or do you get it? Not really. Not particularly. I think uh, I think a good few years ago I maybe watched the odd one here and there, but I just feel like it's such an oversaturated market. <laughs> yeah, that it I, is. I just tend to ignore them all apart from anyone that sort of piques my interest. Yeah. And that one has been as Chris said as well, Black Panther, yeah. um, which. Was okay. Was that just because it's been? I like Ryan Coogler. I enjoyed yeah. Creed a lot. Uh, yeah. like his previous film and um, like just the kind of general vibe of it, the whole kind of aesthetic of it, which is more kind of Afrocentric and you mm. know like Kendrick Lamar stepping up to do the soundtrack and all this. Kind of soundtrack thing. was like, amazing. Soundtrack was very good. So I had all these ten aspects that kind of set it apart beforehand. It kind of also felt like kind of like a, a cultural moment thing. You know, it felt like something that there was more to compel you to see it than like your standard run the mill Marvel thing it felt like because it had such a massive impact especially in the States like it made so much money and drew in so many kind of audiences like the kind of audiences that maybe generally wouldn't go see a superhero film and all this kind of stuff it reached loads of people and it became like particularly if like as someone who listens to a lot of hip hop it became such a reference point so quickly yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. like kind of broader culture that almost felt like to keep up with like how people were insulting each other throughout the year. You had to, you had to be kind of semi-familiar with the, the mythos of Black Panther. Um, well, an, I mean, he's an interesting character culturally, not just in the film case, but, you know, when Stan Lee created him back in the day of the Black Panthers, mm-hmm. you know, it was an important kind of character and that yeah. kind of carried through. Yeah, um, uh, so uh, you should go and see Infinity War because you wouldn't have a fucking no, 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 no. <laughs> I'm, actually, I'm curious to see the new Spider-Man one, the animated one. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. just came out yesterday as we recorded this, so I haven't had a chance to see it yet, but I've heard very good things about that as well. My problem with superhero films isn't really, like, the oversaturations per se, it's just that all of the kind of Marvel stuff just feels so kind of homogenised a lot of the time, mm. you know, it feels so kind of factory line and, like, kind of personality-free, so I think that's my issue with it more yeah. than... I think, I, I think in the last couple of years that's changed. I think yeah. the Ant-Man film is a different thing. I really yeah. liked Ant-Man. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've, seen, really the first one. I've yeah. seen the first Ant-Man. But yeah, I mean, they're still... They are all kind of... I think actually they're better than... My feeling is they're actually better than you would expect them to be because they could just be that, uh, you know like the first three Star Wars, the, the Lucas yeah. ones, you know, like that kind of stuff, and they're not, I think they're, they're more individual than that. I think they've been quite smart with the people that they've got on board to make them. And I would say that anyone I have seen of the past few years mm-hmm. have probably enjoyed enough. Yeah. I just, I find it just a very intimidating oh, universe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's pretty okay. much it for yeah. me. Um, so, any other movies that you want to oh, kind oh. of um, bring up before we... Uh, Turn things I've off. got a couple and I'm sure yep. I've got a couple I think um, one or two I'd probably like to mention would be uh, Thoroughbreds actually right. uh, which is a film I was kind of holding out for last year and was looking forward to seeing purely because um, Anya Taylor-Joy is in it who I think is absolutely excellent mm-hmm. um, she's obviously been like you know deemed the new screen queen um, she was in uh, Robert Eggers The Witch which was yeah. a brilliant film I really enjoyed she was in Split, which I would probably say was the best thing about Split. Didn't really enjoy that too much, but again, she put a great performance. She's also sort of made a kind of step into BBC drama. She was in The Miniaturist last year. Oh, right. Um, which I'm not a favourite for a lot of BBC dramas, but I watched that purely because she was in it. Just a very kind of young up-and-coming actor who is really making great strides in that sort of kind of genre film. Um, it's... It's about two friends. The other friend is played by Olivia Cook, who right. um, I think was quite well known for 
TV show of sorts. I'm not sure what it was she was in. Good no. But she was very good. And it was mainly known to be Anton Yelchin's last film. Ah, yes, yes. So yes. I thought last year that it was going to be a, a big hitter this year in terms of the small indie releases purely because of that. But I think a lot of people who came into watching it because of Anton Yelchin didn't get out of it what they expected to. Right, right. It's quite an odd film. Okay. It's, uh, it kind of channels a lot of sort of Yorgos Lanthimos at times. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the kind of like the mansion house that it's set in the, the premise is that there's two friends one who's a very rich family the other one who is a slightly rich family as well but has a, got a bit of a sort of sociopathic tendencies and they form this sort of unruly friendship um, and which then becomes pitted against um, the, the richer of the two's uh, stepfather who they don't have a good relationship with and I won't say much more about it than that, but it's um, it's along the kind of same things as Calibre when we were discussing that earlier. Yeah, yeah. This sort of like, uh, you know, claustrophobic feel to it. And it sort of flips and subverts the high school genre that you kind of have always known and kind of like moves it into this sort of mansion house sort of atmospheric kind of place. Very, very short, just under 90 minutes. Um, pretty intense film. Um, very, very dark, darkly mm-hmm. comic as well. Um, and a really, really good score by Eric Fikander. And it's uh, written by a guy called Corey Finlay, who's a new writer, director. That's his debut feature, I think. I think he'd originally written it as a play, but he said he, he visualised it more cinematically, um, and it became a film. So that's um, it sort of kind of falls into the sort of Lady Macbeth, the beginning ah, of the yes, yes. Um So yeah, I think that's okay. a really good film you should check out. And uh, the other one I kind of wanted to mention... I've got two more, but I feel like Chris will mention one of them, so I'll just mention this one. Um, that didn't work on all levels for me, but I think it's worth mentioning, was uh, Steve McQueen's Widows. Ah, right. Now, I um, remember the TV show. So, yeah, so I don't know <laughs> a lot about this, and I'm sure you can fill this yeah, in. Yeah, yeah. Um, for me, it didn't work on all levels for me, but I, I don't think that was necessarily criticism. Yes. I think it, um, it, it sort of touched on a lot of really, really interesting issues. And topics um, behind this heist thriller front, which was the weakest part of the film for right, me, okay. but was a very important part of it in terms of putting it across to a sort of wider cinematic audience. Sure. I think um, the other issue probably was that it tried to touch on too many issues. It's touching on race, gender, you know, um, urban issues, mm-hmm. um, city planning, um, socio-political issues. Um, and rather than focusing and honing in on a couple of those it sort of tried to do too much yet I admire it for that mm-hmm. I'd, I'd rather a film would try, try and, and sort of do those things and fail a little bit yeah. and create an interesting film than not try at all so um, yeah I think um, the front of the heist filler for me um, did make it more palatable for a mainstream audience but um, it also threw up two of the most memorable scenes of the year for me which was um, Daniel Kaluuya, who is absolutely outstanding and obviously was in Get Out last year. Mm-hmm. Uh, was that last year? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, This really, really intense, frightening character that he plays with this amazing scene that I would ruin for people, but you'll know it when you see it. And then this other really interesting scene, which um, I really enjoyed the way it was filmed, which is not a spoiler at all, but essentially it's Colin Farrell's character, um, who's running for, for office or mm-hmm. whatever, and um, his campaign manager, they're in the back of this sort of like four by four tinted out windows and they're leaving this campaign speech in the sort of poorer part of the village of the, the, the city that they're in and they're driving through and it's a sort of three to four minute long shot mm-hmm. with the camera mounted in front of the car and you can't actually see into the car but you can hear them having a conversation All right. but it's wide enough that you can see the uh, the environment changing around them so he's said throughout the film that he lives in this neighbourhood and he's yeah. very much a part of this neighbourhood 
and people are like, well, you're not really, you know, you're from a completely different culture from us, um, and it drives him back to where he stays, and yeah. you see the neighbourhood around him gradually becoming more affluent uh. in the space of two to three minutes, um, and yeah, very, very interesting film, and I really admire it for what it done. As I say, it didn't work on all levels for me, but... Yeah was interesting nonetheless it's, a, it's an interesting film when I heard Stephen Queen was doing Linda LaPlante's Widows I was like what really because it, it was a big TV show and uh, the premise is the same premise you know um, they are widows of um, well, bank robbers I think but certainly bad men uh, who decide they're going to take over the jobs and, and do them themselves and you just think oh, this is, it's a bit like uh, I don't know Paul Thomas Anderson doing Bergerac or something like that. It's a. I mean, you say that like it's. Bad thing, <laughs> yeah, I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I just think it's an odd thing to do. But I would like to see it because I think yeah, yeah. yeah. Daniel Day Lewis is getting out of retirement. Yeah, one last job. Yeah, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, Have you seen? Did you see? Widows? I saw. Yeah, I saw Widows. Um, I think it very much. I don't want to say suffered, but it was very clearly like an art house filmmaker doing genre stuff and yeah. trying like very consciously trying to use it to make a statement rather than just letting it kind of come organically from the material right. it, was, it felt very much like he had stuff that he definitely wanted to say and found a vehicle for it and kind of grafted it on uh, as opposed to necessarily like organically kind of coming from the material it's still perfectly enjoyable saw it with like a full Saturday afternoon audience of like largely middle-aged people who gasped at all the right places and you know had the perfect reactions to all the twists and turns and all that like oh, she shot him all this kind of stuff you know uh, all of that so that was that was fun you know there's really good really strong cast across the board I mean that's an amazing cast like isn't it Colin Farrell but yeah obviously like Viola Davis yeah. and like Elizabeth Debicki um, like Robert Duvall Liam Neeson Daniel Kaluuya Brian Tyree Henry who's amazing he's Paperboy on Atlanta the Donald Glover TV show who's like fantastic in this um, so yeah just as an ensemble piece like it's great like just a showcase for a lot of really good actors yeah. going at it with each other and it's good to see Liam Neeson doing something other than you know beating people up who steal yeah. members of his family which seems to have been his well, career well I mean it's not a million miles from him <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's still yeah it's nice to see him flex also in the he does very good work in the Coen Brothers uh, Ballad of Buster yeah. Scruggs yeah, uh, yeah. which I mean, we've already talked about Netflix production, so I won't spend too much time on it. But hey, if you ever want to see Liam Neeson sing the Sash, then this is <laughs> this is the one yeah. for you. Yeah, yeah. Oh, really? Wow. <laughs> yep. Uh, <laughs> did you? Had you ever wanted that? I mean, <laughs> not consciously, but then it did feel like a void had been filled. Yeah. Because I actually saw it happen. Um, but in terms of like um, art house directors doing genre stuff, I think like someone who's in the, like kind of an old hand at that by this point, Steven Soderbergh. Mm -hmm. uh, yes, this yes. year released his second film since retiring um, <laughs> so uh, Unseen which is uh, yeah. shot entirely on an iPhone uh, another one of his kind of more formal experiments but just fantastic like it's one of those ones where like I kind of sat with like a grin from ear to ear for the entire thing because you're like he's not going to do this is he oh he did it you know kind of thing just kind of takes so many chances and like formal gambits and what have you is uh, Claire Foy plays uh, a woman who has uh, been the victim of stalking uh, and she's completely changed her identity moved cities and um it ends up kind of involuntarily committed to a mental institution. She goes, she thinks she's going to see a therapist who gets her to sign a form uh, and she doesn't read the small print and doesn't realise that she has volunteered herself to be committed for a week uh, and doesn't actually belong there. And then the rest of the film charts her struggles to actually try and escape the institution 
especially when she begins to suspect that one of the orderlies might actually be her stalker who has followed her from the previous, uh, the previous city that she lived in. And it's, it just keeps escalating. It's one of these just tightens the screws all the way through. And it, it's one of those ones that a couple of levels you think, how can he sustain this? How can he sustain it in like this confined setting you know, with a limited cast? shot entirely on an iPhone <laughs> you know and it just keeps going it just yeah. Yeah, follows it through and like is yeah I just loved it absolutely loved it just the most one of the most fun kind of pieces of like genre workouts like I saw this year just again like Soderbergh's just so adept at that by this point I've been able to straddle that divide between like art house and mainstream and genre and just kind of do what he wants really he's just such a master of like the formal aspects of filmmaking at this point it feels like there's not really much he can take on uh, and it's, yeah and it's an interesting film we talk about as well because as you mentioned Claire Foy in it her absolute powerhouse performance mm. from her, yeah, what that film having, could, yeah. could have fallen apart I, I would have thought if that was someone else in that role who couldn't have really held the weight of the film on um, that's not to say the filmmaking wasn't great yeah. the filmmaking was great but it really relied on someone to deliver such a performance in the way that she did um, which gave it that sort of intensity which Again, there seems to be a lot of intense claustrophobic films that we've discussed <laughs> this year. <laughs> we have, we have really uh, lightened things up. Um, yeah. The one film I would like to f- uh, mention before we finish is a tiny independent film um, called Time Trial, which was about the last Tour de France of David Miller, um, who was done for taking drugs and banned at a time, the time when everyone in the Tour de France was taken. I'm not saying he should be forgiven or whatever. But, you know, it was the time when everyone was absolutely doing it. Uh, anyway, he was kind of probably Scotland's greatest athlete at the time. He was, you know, winning, didn't win the tour, but he won other tours, uh, Spain and stuff like that. And he, um, you know, won uh, stages and things like that. Um, and then was banned for, I think, five years. But anyway, he became, when he came back, he became a kind of... Um, reformer and did some great work uh, to kind of rehabilitate the sport um, but it's really the way the film was made because they were all it was made using GoPro cameras mm-hmm. on the riders and they got incredible access to um, filming in the peloton as the peloton's going on and, and you hear them talking to each other and what's said and them passing energy bars and passing drinks and you get and if you've ever been and I, I'm quite in it my cycling uh, it was a fascinating insight into uh, how that and just what these people go through um, for their sport, which is one of the toughest sports you know, you know you're going to ever have. It's it's pretty insane, and yet he kept on doing it, kept on doing it. And I won't spoil what happens to him, but um, uh, you know the theme of our chat has been no happy endings, and there's not really one. <laughs> um, well, so thanks, guys. That was the, the year in film that was, and uh, we'll be back with you soon to talk about the best music of 2018, and we'll see you then. Cheers. Mm-hmm.